Uh, Before we get to the Thanksgiving feast, let's feast a little more on His Word. For as the Bible says, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 16, and as you're finding your place, would you please stand? 1 Samuel 16, last week we saw that God has chosen David to be his king. If we take anything out of the first 14 verses of chapter 16, it is this, that God has chosen David. And we explored a little bit how David did nothing to deserve this choice. He didn't make himself available. He didn't even know that he was eligible, but God had chosen him. We're going to continue looking at this opening chapter in David's life now. So 1 Samuel 16, verses 13 through 23. This is the Word of God. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of his young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, God took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we take a look at this text, I pray that your Spirit would minister to us, open our eyes, teach us how to read your Word. I pray that as we come to know David with greater clarity through the Scriptures, that we would have a deeper love for the Son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a new and better David, who succeeded where David failed, but that you began with this first messianic king, a thousand years before the birth of Christ, we marvel. We love you. I pray that you would breathe on this church. Bless us and show your favor to us. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. 
this is a tricky text. Uh, I don't know if, if you're just trying to read through the Bible in a year, you don't have time to pause and see how tricky this text is. And uh, that's okay. I think it's a great thing to read large swaths of the Bible, get through the Bible in a year. And if you've never done that, I commend that to you. And don't worry about all the little details that we're going to be looking at in this sermon series. But if you, you do have an opportunity to slow down, to ask yourself, what, what's going on here? You would see that there are a number of difficulties with, these, with this passage. I'm not going to be able to address all of them, but let me just note for you three. The first revolves around the spiritual activity of the life of Saul. And we can't help but ask the question, does the Spirit of the Lord depart from people? That's, that's, that's problematic for us as Christians. And then, if that weren't enough, in the very next verse, we find out that the Lord sends an evil spirit to torment Saul. That's even more challenging. Does God really do that? Does God withdraw His Holy Spirit from some people? And then does He send an evil spirit to torment those same people? Second difficulty with this passage revolves around the king's servant who apparently knew David. Who is this servant? We've just been introduced to David. It seems like David was a nobody in the middle of nowhere doing nothing of eternal significance. And then Saul is out of his mind, ravaged by an evil spirit. He says, I need a music therapist. And one of his servants puts his hands up and says, I know a guy in Bethlehem. And for us, the irony is rich because we know that this guy, David, was just anointed to be the king's successor. How does this servant know these things about David? David was the eighth of eight brothers in Bethlehem. I, I like to pick on Angus. Bethlehem was like the Angus of Israel. Yeah, David. Jacob might be chosen. <laughs> but... How does this servant from Angus, I mean, from Saul's court, know about this boy tending sheep in Bethlehem? And then, can we even trust that the things that this servant says about this boy in Bethlehem are true? Third difficulty with this passage revolves around the delicious irony of verse 23. Here we have two kings together. We just met David and all of a sudden he's in the royal throne room or in the bedchamber of the sitting king to, of whom he's going to replace. And the sitting king is out of his mind and he is dependent upon his music therapist who will replace him one day. One king is tormented by an evil spirit. The other is endowed with the Holy Spirit and is his music therapist and successor. I mean, this is quite a passage. Now you notice, I didn't resolve any of this for you. And neither will I. Not this morning. Well, Because today what I want us to see is that when you read biblical narrative, when you, the way in which God has preserved history in the Bible is not nearly as straightforward as we often think it is. And we draw all kinds of conclusions based on what we think it ought to have said and not necessarily on what it does say. From these three difficulties then, what I want us to spend our time on is to learn two things about Hebrew narrative. 
And, and I do this at the outset because as we're going to go through this sermon series, we're going to want to read the Bible carefully according to the conventions of Hebrew writing. The first thing that we learn about Hebrew narrative is that it's intentionally ambiguous. And the second thing that we're going to take a look at is how do the Hebrew writers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, make characterizations about the men and women of the Bible. First, first thing, ambiguity. Second thing, characterization. Let's take a look at them in order. Ambiguity. What do we mean by ambiguity? What is ambiguity? Ambiguity simply is this. When something just is not clear, that's ambiguity. And as I said, Hebrew narrative is almost always intentionally ambiguous. That is, a careful reading of the narrative stretches of the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, but it's also true in the New, is that you're reading things, and if you're reading it carefully, it doesn't always add up. You have to ask yourself, what does this mean? What do I make of this? What do I derive from this? What is the lesson for me? How does this help me to understand God? How does this inform my understanding and embrace of the gospel? Read carefully, Hebrew narrative creates more problems and poses more questions than it gives answers to. Now let's just admit the obvious. We, 21st century Canadians, hate this. We hate this. Don't be unclear. Especially in the pulpit, right? My job is to come up and to give you some clarity about what the Bible says. Now what I'm telling you is that God wrote the Bible intentionally ambiguous. But we want clear. We want precise. We want unambiguous truth. And we want it served up in half an hour or less in propositional statements that we can then affirm, embrace, and then move on with our busy lives. Thank you very much. Right? That's what we want? That's just not how the Bible's written. And if we step back for a moment, if we're not as worried about what we expect to get from the pulpit or what we expect to get from the Bible, this very thing that I'm pointing out this morning makes the Bible really good literature. Now, that's almost anathema in some churches. What? You can't say the Bible's really good literature. Why not? If Shakespeare could write really good literature, why couldn't God write really good literature? Right? But we don't want the Bible to be literature. We want it to be something else. We want it to be a gateway to propositional truth or we want it to be a gateway to historical facts. And and I'm not denying the historicity of the Bible, but here's the thing about the Bible. The Bible records history through great literature so that a careful reader of the Bible will never get to the end of it, will never get to the bottom of it. You'll never be able to exhaust these questions. Does God withdraw His Spirit from people? Does God send evil spirits? Now we can find answers, but as you are reading the Bible carefully, then you get to another episode that's not clear and raises all kinds of questions about the network of systematic theology that you thought you understood. 
And all of a sudden, you have a disruption in what you thought you understood about God and the gospel and his word and how it impacts your life. And so these ripples, these ambiguous gaps in the storytelling by God through careful historians forces us always to keep what we think we know about God in its proper humility, in its proper check. Now why would, the God, would God write the Bible ambiguously? Why not just tell us a hundred facts about God? Fifty truths about the gospel. Do these four things and you will be saved. Follow these rules and it will go well with you. Why have pro- pro- proverbial knowledge which says if you do this, then you'll be blessed. If you do that, then you'll be cursed. So that's Proverbs. And then you have the book of Job who does the right thing and is still, so it seems, cursed. That that's, seems like a contradiction. What is the answer to this? How do we hold it all together? Well, well, the ambiguity in Hebrew narrative as well as the seeming contradictions in the other parts of the Bible forces us to read and reread and reread and reread the Bible. God says, I want you to immerse yourself. I want you to saturate yourself in the Word of God. You're not going to get it the first time. It also requires us to weigh carefully the evidence presented. Uh, we have to go through and say, yeah, but what about this? Oh, that's true. But what about that? Oh, that, that is also true. We have to weigh the evidence presented. It, therefore, by its very nature, requires communal interpretation. Can't do this alone. What God shows me, he might not have shown you. And what God shows you, he might not have shown me. We need one another. You need to tell me and others what God has shown you in the Scriptures. And then we have to talk about it. Is, is that a fair reading? Is that a good interpretation? Because not all readings are equal. And so we have to hold each other in check. We have to journey together in trying to understand God's Word. Fourth, it hides the truth from the masses. The very thing that we're trying to do, God doesn't seem that interested in doing Himself. He tries to hide Himself in plain sight. That's why Jesus spoke in parables. So that hearing they would not understand and seeing they would not perceive. Otherwise, they would see and they would hear and they would turn to me and I would heal them, says the Lord. What? God intentionally, in the ministry of Christ, hid himself in plain sight? Precisely. Why? Why would God do that? Why would God hide himself in the ministry of Jesus? Why would he hide himself in, in the Scriptures? Because that creates a dependency on the Holy Spirit. You cannot understand this book with human faculties alone. This is a supernatural book to be read and understood and uncovered supernaturally. It requires the Holy Spirit. So, so in the Reformed tradition, sometimes we have the Holy Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Book. Well, I have a high view of Scripture. This is the Word of God. But we need the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Are we inviting Him into our Bible reading? Are we inviting Him into our Christian life? Thus, does the Lord send evil spirits to torment people? Apparently. I'm not going to say any more about that today. Who is this servant that knows David? Well, we don't know. Can we trust what the servant says about David? 
time will tell. And that takes us to our second question. Um, what we want to do, let me just land on this, what this servant says. Just let's take a look at it in, uh, what verse is that, 18. One of the young men answered Saul, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. This is what we want to do. That's all true. We want to say, that's true. The Bible tells me that that's who David is. The Bible is telling me that David is those things. Therefore, that's who David is. And I'm going to read his life as if all those things are true. Because as we meet David, there is this unknown servant who is serving in the court of a king who is being ravaged by an evil spirit. And though we don't know who this witness is, we're going to believe him. We're going to say everything I believe about David has got to line up with what this guy in King Saul's court said about him so many years ago. We don't even know how he came to this information. We don't even know if he's embellishing or whether or not he's lying. Which brings us to our second of two things that we're looking at today. Characterization. There are two ways that Hebrew writers establish the personality of a person in the Bible. Uh, there is the direct characterization and the indirect characterization of men and women in the Bible. Direct characterization is done this way. Either God says it about the person or the narrator says it about the person. That's direct characterization and that is 9.9 .9 out of 10 times reliable. Now, there are, there's the odd exceptions. You, know, you learn the rule, then there's the exception. But let's just say it, you can trust God and you can trust the narrator. We all know what a narrator is. It's the one who is telling the story. That's direct characterization. So if God says it, believe it. And if the narrator says it, believe it. But then there's indirect characterization. Indirect characterization is any other form of figuring out who a person is in the Bible. So how do we, what are some examples? Well, we watch what the men and women do in the Bible. And then we evaluate their, their actions. That's indirect characterization. Or in this case, or in other cases, the things that men and women say in the Bible, we can judge them by their own words. Do their words line up with their behavior? And if there's a contradiction there, oh, well, let's learn something. That's indirect characterization. And then there's this way, which we're going to look at right now. Sometimes other characters in the narrative will say something or have an opinion about another character in the narrative. That's not direct characterization. That's indirect characterization, which means we have to weigh it. We have to evaluate it. We have to ask ourselves, do we believe it or don't we believe it? Is this witness reliable? Or is this witness not trustworthy? Is this person speaking on behalf of God or not? And, and, and if you go back into the first 15 chapters of, of 1 Samuel, well, fascinating character study, and I bring this up over and over again, but Samuel. Sometimes Samuel is speaking for God, and sometimes Samuel is speaking for himself. And so you have to weigh that out. When is he speaking for God, and when is he speaking for himself? When is he acting on behalf of God, and when is he acting on behalf of himself? Just because he's a prophet doesn't mean that he is infallible. It doesn't mean that he is Jesus Christ walking around in 1000 B.C., 
even prophets of the Lord make sense, make mistakes, even or especially when we are reading the biblical narrative. In this chapter, then, we have direct characterization of David, and we have indirect characterization of David. Take a look at verse 12. This is direct characterization of David. So Samuel says, go and get David. We're not going to sit down until he gets here. Verse 12. And so he sent and brought David in. Now, he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Direct characterization. Who's speaking in this, in this verse? Now at the end it's God, but before God speaks. Right, it's the narrator. So you can believe what the narrator says. So, so the narrator is going to directly characterize David by, by sh- telling us something that's reliable about the way that David looks. He was ruddy, that is he's a redhead, fair complexion, he had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. We know these things to be true about David because the narrator tells us that they are true. Direct characterization why did the narrator tell us these things about David that's another thing that we'll get to we don't often get descriptions in Hebrew narrative so when it does come it's really important it helps you to interpret what's going on so what's the benefit of knowing these things about David does it really matter yeah it does let me give you two reasons one it creates tension with verse 7 right remember when when Samuel is about to anoint Uh, Eliab because he looked impressive he was tall strong and handsome and then what does God say to Samuel in verse 7 he says do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him for the Lord sees not as man sees man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart then you get to verse 12 and David comes in you expect the, uh, the the runt of the litter some ugly specimen of a man and he comes in he's he's handsome He's attractive. He looks like he could be a king. He stands out because he's ruddy. So you're like, well, what gives? Like, well, there's some tension there. God doesn't look on the outward appearance, but if if Samuel had just seen David, he might have said, yeah, you look like a king. I'll anoint you. The other thing, the other reason that the narrator tells us about David's appearance is that David will use his looks and his charm to rise up to the position of king. And we're going to see that. People are drawn to David, partly because of the way he looks on the outside. And remember last week we talked about, well, when we read verse 7, we think that God chose David because of his heart. But actually, that warning about Eliab is equally true about David. God doesn't look on the outside. God looks on the heart. And so should you. But throughout the life of David, what we're going to see is people love David because of his packaging. Because of the way he looks. And the way he flaunts his looks and his stature. And he's able to draw all kinds of people to himself because of that. And so, verse 7, rather than it saying to us that God chose David because he has a good heart, it's warning us that David is impressive on the outside, just like his older brother. It runs in the family. We're going to see in the next couple of weeks that Eliab accuses David of having a wicked heart. Maybe it's true. And by maybe, I mean certainly it's true. 
indirect characterization in this chapter. We see indirect characterization, as I said, in verse 18. We're told that David, by this ambiguous servant, is skillful in playing. So he's got some musical ability, according to this guy. We find out in this chapter that that is confirmed true. He's musical. He's good on the harp. He's a man of valor and he's a man of war. A man of valor talks to the inward uh, disposition of David. He's brave. He's courageous. He's honorable. He's a man of war. That means he's athletic and strong and able with a sphere, or we're going to find out, with a sling. He's prudent in speech, so he's wise. In other words, what we learn from this unnamed servant in Saul's court is he's, he's the perfect guy. He's your philosopher king. He's your renaissance man who can do everything. But we do not know these things to be true about David for sure. Not yet. Because they're not put in the mouth of the narrator, but in the mouth of an ambiguous secondary character. Now why? Okay, put yourself in the position of the one who's writing this history. And you have to make a decision. I'm going to characterize David in the introductory chapter. All right, in verse 12, I'm going to say for certain that these things are true about David. Then you get down just a few verses later into verse 18, you say, ah, I have a choice. I can either, as the narrator, affirm these things to be true about David, or I could put them in the mouth of an unknown servant in Saul's court. Which one am I going to do? Now, before you jump on me and say that I'm saying that this isn't historical, okay, so what if the, if the servant actually said that? in Saul's court, historically. I'm not denying that. But the one who is writing this account of history can choose whether or not to record that episode of the servant saying those things to Saul, or he could just say it himself. Don't for, let's not forget that there is an author here at work who is creating the contours of how this history is being presented to us. And he says, no, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put these characterizations of David into the mouth of a servant. We don't know who he is. We don't know what his name is. We don't know what the source of his information is. Therefore, we cannot trust him. Which means we don't know if these things about David are true or false. So why would the narrator, inspired by the Holy Spirit, write the history this way? Two reasons. The first reason is that as we read through the life of David, this is exactly how David's contemporaries will see and understand him. So the narrator is saying by putting this characterization of David in the, in the, in the mouth of a servant, he's saying this is what people are going to think about David. Whether it's true or false doesn't matter for a moment. This is how people will view and see David. David is going to carefully cultivate his public image, his public persona, so that the very things that this servant says about him is what the masses are going to think of him. And by putting this in the, in the mouth of the servant, what, he is saying, what the narrator is saying to us, watch for this. Watch how people react to David and ask yourself if they are right or wrong to see David that way. 
And that leads us right to the second reason that the narrator does this. We have to ask ourselves, is this true of David or not? And I cannot tell you whether or not this is true or false from this chapter. We have to read his whole life. And we have to ask ourselves by watching David, by carefully reading about David, by seeing why did David do what he did? Why did David say what he said? What does the narrator say about David? What does God say about the narrator? What, what is the big picture of David? And when we put it all together and we measure David against what people think of him, first of all, this servant, what we're going to find out is this isn't exactly true. You know what's interesting? Not only is this what the servant thinks of David, we don't know why or how. Not only is this what David's contemporaries thought about David, but this is exactly what most Christians think about David. We read that, yeah, that's David. That's, that's the David I know. That's not the David I know. No, there's aspects of truth and everything there, but David is much more complex than that just like I am, just like you are. Which brings us to our concluding comments. Is this even a sermon? <laughs> or is this a lesson? Well, I don't know. But maybe buckle up and get used to it because, see, the genre of the Christian sermon makes it hard to make these kinds of observations and therefore we get through preaching the life of David and we've never actually stopped to understand him. And if we don't understand him, I'm going to bridge the gospel right now. If we don't understand David, then and if we make some false conclusions about David, we will necessarily make some false conclusions about David's relationship with the Lord. And if we make some false conclusions about David's relationship with the Lord, and might I also say God's relationship with David, then we create a scaffolding with bad doctrine. And if we have a scaffolding with bad doctrine, we won't understand the gospel. And at best, what we will do, this is at best, we'll say there are two gospels. There's the Gospel of the Old Testament, the Gospel of David, where you earn your right standing with God. And then there's the Gospel of the New Testament, the Gospel of the Son of David, where you're, you fall short and you need the grace of God. And what we are going to see is that David was saved exactly as we are saved. David. Oh man, he, he has some major sin issues that we're going to explore. And not just at the end of his life with Bathsheba and Uriah. But in the very next chapter, chapter 17, when, when God introduces David horizontally. So chapter 16 is vertical. The next chapter is horizontal. And we see David interacting on the plane of human intercourse. Even there, we're going to see a more complicated David than we've been willing to see in the past. And then the gospel will make sense for David. And we'll see, wow, God really is a God of grace. As a pastor, I am very aware that people see often, not always, but people often see the Old Testament as brutal, wrathful, vengeful, legalistic, and then we begin to make this false dichotomy between God and the Old Covenant and God and the New Covenant. I want to break that down. There's one God and He doesn't change. 
He's a God of love and patience and grace and mercy in the Old Covenant. What's my proof? King David. So today we've learned about ambiguity and characterization. Ambiguity. When you're reading carefully through Old Testament Scripture, if you're in a narrative stretch, it shouldn't always make sense to you. That's ambiguous. Well, how do I make sense of that? That's a good question. Secondly, don't trust anyone in the Bible except for God and the narrator. I mean, in the narrative sections. Uh, it's a prophet. If you're in the book of Micah, yeah, that's the word of God. But that's not narrative. In, narr- in the narrative sections, believe God and the narrator and have a healthy skepticism of everyone else, including your spiritual heroes like David. And then, I promise you, you'll see Jesus Christ. And you'll see the grace of the gospel in the Old Testament. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray that you would help us to become careful readers of the Bible, knowing that you're a God of love and a God of grace, and you always have been. From Adam to Christ and beyond, even into our current day, to the last saint is chosen, uh, you've poured out your love and grace on a rebellious humanity. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.